Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. You're done with your Oreo? Yeah, <laughs> done with my Oreo. Okay, good. Um, do we really know what happened? The brother did. The brother, that's what I thought too. I mean, that seems like kind of obvious. Hey, do you want to talk about death? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm mystery, murdery, thingy, thingy, thingy. Welcome to Mystery Murdery Thingy. Yeah, my name's Chloe. Hey, I'm Mario. How y'all doing? We're in the <laughs> podcasting closet. We're in our fabulous closet where it's a closet. It's, and it's, it's, a, pretty, little... it's a pretty big closet, it, yet yeah. we need more space. Well, I feel like it was a pretty good space because it's like enclosed and the clothes, you know, provide like, you know, what's it called? Insulation. You know yeah. what I mean? Stuff like that. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Audio. <laughs> sure. Super, super cool. Oh, yeah. Acoustics. But absolutely. I took an acoustics class in college. Well, it was like phys- the, the physics of acoustics. Yeah. No, it was, thank you. It was very interesting. I didn't do that well. I think I got like a C or something because I'm not good. Formulas. <sighs> okay, Mario. They made us memorize them. What? Are you ready to talk about true crime? <laughs> yes. You don't want me to describe more of the classes that I took in college? Absolutely not. No, it's not. doesn't make for good content. No. Let's jump right in. Okay. I'm going to... We have gonna... questions about... <laughs> we do not know the answer to... Okay. Sorry. I am in confusion. Uh, okay. I'm going to go, go first this I'm week. We, we just decided. And I am going to cover the very interesting life and very mysterious death of uh, Captain George Musalas Calvacaresis. And, you know... Person mystery. And, and uh, like we always do, you know, when, when someone's the victim of a murder, especially, right, we don't only want to talk about the murder, you know, and the grisly details or whatever, right? Like, we want to talk about that person. And like, right. You know, kind of, like, honor their life along with talking right. about the, the mystery. So a lot of my write-up today is, like, about him. But he, he led, like, a... Just like super interesting life, so I think it's it's going to be like compelling in and of itself. But okay. so George Musalas Calvacaresis, he began life. Um, I don't know. It's funny. Like he 
he had like a very tragic life in a lot of ways, but he also led kind of like a charmed life in some ways too. And like that's it kind of started out that way. He grew up in um or he was born in eighteen sixteen and he spent the first seven years of his life on this Greek island called Chios. He he was a, a Greek. Oh. And it was called uh nicknamed the Happy Isle. And it was called that because, okay, so at that time, Greece wasn't an independent country. It was actually, like, ruled by the Turkish sultan, right? And, of course, right, obviously. As we, as we all already knew, I know. Sure. So, <laughs> right. We're all aware of, you know, Greek history from 250 years ago. Um, so, anyway, he, um, it, it was called that because the people on the island paid, like, a tribute to the Turkish sultan. So they kind of had this, like, kind of semi-autonomous position within the, the Greek Isles. And they, they had it better, right, than, than most people. Oh, better okay. schools, better whatever, right? Yeah. Um, and some form of, like, their own self-government. And the Kalvakaresi, which is the kind of proper Greek spelling of his last name, were one of the leading uh, families on, on the island of Chios. In fact, even up till the 1930s, one of his relatives was the mayor of, of Chios. Um, okay. And though, you know, they kind of had this, you know, um, privileged existence, right? They were very wealthy, but as sometimes happens, when you're a really wealthy person and you're connected to the established, you know, power structures, there is... A war of independence. So in 1821, oh. Greece okay. had a war of independence. And, you know, people like the Calva Caressi, suddenly their lives went from, you know, this privileged, you know, charmed existence to, oh my God, like, where are we going to go? Like, what's happening? It was super, um, you know, well, at first it wasn't like that. So at first their island was, again, kind of spared from anything. But eventually some of the people who were actually fomenting the uprising, which was like not the Kalvakaresi or like the people on the island necessarily, one of them came there and then the Turks like followed that guy. And then that guy like peaced out. And then the Turks were like, hey, we, you know, you're Greek. Like we're here, you know, we're at war with you. We need what? hostages. So the the Turks um, they they demand hostages of the people on the island. Why? Because they're, they're like putting down this rebellion of the the like Greece independence. So they're they're like at war with each other. Okay, okay. Does that it's make just sense? The motives. I explained that I, I, really weirdly. It makes sense, but the motives like what? Because that's what you do in the 1820s should... when you're the Turkish Sultan and you're at war. I, I'm not sure. I'm not totally sure. Okay, so you're not a warmonger. You've never... <laughs> I don't have personal experience in this field. Okay, all right. Just wanted to check Just that box. to let you know. Okay, so, um, like I said, the Turks were, like, taking hostages, and according to the Washington Historical Quarterly, one of my sources, um, and this is a quote from one of their articles from 1934, quote, A reign of terror commenced that culminated in one of the most tragic events of modern times. Hostages were murdered and their heads stuck on pikes oh, about the fuck. walls of the citadel Ugh. and a general slaughter commenced, close quote. So again, we're not to dwell on gruesome details, right? But like, yeah, shit was real fucked up, like as bad as you can imagine, if, if this is to be believed, you know. that. But cl clearly there was a lot of wholesale killing going on. So, like I said, just a total in inversion of their lives, like, from day from one day to the next. 
And young George, you know, at, at seven years old and his family fled to the interior of the island where, like, the Turks hadn't gotten to quite yet. And they were hiding in a country village and for a few days, maybe. And um, they kind of figured out, okay, the Turks are going to get here, right? They could see it coming, like, literally see them, you know, coming, maybe. And the dad kind of, like, um, sneaked away, right, through the forest. But uh, George and his family, some other, like, he had a lot of siblings, some other of his relatives were captured. And they were held, you know, by by the Turks. Um, But the father, who had kind of miraculously escaped, right, like, just at the last second, um, in all the confusion, found his way to one of his friends who happened to work at the Austrian consulate there in Kios. And through the help uh, of the Austrian consulate, they were able to eventually ransom George and some of his family members. Um, wow. So they, they were not ki- actually killed. Because, wow. um, you know, the Turks knew they, they could get some yeah. ransom from, from them. So, yeah, he was able to get away. So some of the Kalvakaresi, though, you know, were, were killed. Um, some of them survived. But there were as many as 60,000 people that were killed in this, like, general massacre, like, trying to put down the, the, the Greek uh, um, independence movement. Ugh. Yeah, I know. It's, like, super crazy. And I, I knew, like, there was a, a Greek war of independence, but I didn't really know, like, too much about it. Yeah, apparently it was, like, super, super gruesome. Um, so, obviously, Kios, their happy island, was no longer that, right? They couldn't live there. Um and George was sent to find a better life in America, along with about nine other Greek um, boys who were refugees. And um, they, um, you know, uh, took a, a long trip, um, um, a long, like, steamer. Blip, dip, dip, blip, blip. <laughs> they went on a big boat, and they <laughs> <laughs> they crossed the sea. And this this took a while, but, you know, George, it's funny, he... Like I said, he kind of had, like, a charmed life in some ways, even amongst all this tragedy. And he always seemed like he, he made a very good impression on, like, adults. Like, he was, like, one of those kids who was, like, always made friends with, like, the adult. And that, that like, started right away on this on this trip. Yeah, kind of a little bit like me. Yeah. <laughs> he was, like, there, like, hanging out with the older people. Did, did you have a question? Um, I forgot. Oh, oh, what do you mean by charmed life? What does that even mean? Well, that, that's what I'm, I'm, I'm kind of telling the, the story, you know, like he, he had these episodes where things went tragically wrong, but then, you know, it, it was also like, you know, the, he had these like amazing adventures and things. It, it's kind of what I'm getting to. So, um, he had to leave his, his homeland, his family, right? Um, but he did find a friend, like I was, I was saying, on the, the brig that they took across the sea, the Margarita. And, um... He made friends with the uh, first mate, who taught him some English and kind of like you know befriended him, and then they um, first landed in ba- in Baltimore Harbor, I should say. Wow! And um, the first mate, he actually took like such a liking to George, and this this is kind of what I'm talking about, like this sort of like charmed, like this didn't seem normal, right? The the first mate, yeah, I mean they became friends, but he actually took George to his mom's house, like the first mate's mom's house. And, like, told his mom, like, you need to raise this boy. And, like, what? he's going to become part of our family. Uh, yeah. This is, it, it was kind of crazy. What about the rest of his siblings? 
well, he's left the rest of his family. Like, he's left, oh. he's gone to America to seek his fortune okay. alone by himself. Because okay. it's the early 19th century, right? Yeah. And it's like, that's what you do. You know, yeah. you send your boy across the sea. Hope you make it, George. Please go to America, find a better life. Although I say that, I mean, shit, that's happened. I realize as I'm saying that, I'm actually it's really stupid because it's happening right now. right now in our country. Yeah. People coming from. El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, etc., doing the exact same thing, actually, as I'm saying that, oh, this was so long ago. Wow. That was a moment of self-realization right there. <laughs> anyway, so we, I think we can all kind of connect with this story, actually, in History a way. History repeats itself. I know. Continuously. So anyway, for young George, though, it, it, that was not to end up being his home with the first mate's mom, right? <laughs> It, it actually got even, it was, it got better from there for George, um, rather markedly. Um, so when George and the other Greek young refugees stories were published in the newspaper, um, George's story really stuck out. Like he, again, he was always making a big impression. Even the president, President Monroe, took notice of these young refugees. It was oh. like a huge story in America at the okay. time, like the Greek War of Independence, you know, the our war of independence wasn't very much long, you know, before this. So it, yeah. it really resonated with the American populace. And like, this was actually a group of refugees that America like really like immediately took like a shine to, which is kind of unusual in American history, honestly. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, pre pretty darn unusual. Um, again, as we can see nowadays. Um, so anyway, president Monroe promised George that he would pay for his, uh, for a cadetship to join the military once George came of age. Um, so, you know, th this this was kind of what set him, part of what set him on the course of his life, right? And for, actually, as we'll see, even generations to come for the, the call for caresses, if that's how one says that. Um, so George's story also caught the notice of a certain Captain Alden Partridge, who... Uh, was a recently retired military officer who had founded and was the head of the American Literary, Military, and Scientific Academy at Norwich, Vermont, which is now just called Norwich University. But, it, but it's uh, one of these pr private military academies, like the Citadel, you know. Um, so Captain Partridge, actually, he read, you know, George's story in the paper and was so struck by it that he actually wrote to the postmaster in Baltimore offering to have young George come to Norwich, Vermont and get a free education and actually be his son. I'm like so bewildered at the luck this guy has. But you see what I was saying with the, I know it seemed weird when I kept saying charmed all of, uh, over and over again, Yeah, but you can see, see what I mean, right? Yeah. Exactly. So having, you know, sufficiently impressed all of these, you know, powerful people somehow, right? Just by the force of his personality coming through print. Um, he, he kind of found, a, a, you know, his new, his new homeland, his new home. And, and this is where George at Norwich would spend the next nine years uh, living with actually mainly Captain Partridge's brother and wife. Um, Captain Partridge, I guess, wasn't married. I'm not sure. And uh, tending some land and cattle that were given to, to him by Captain Partridge uh, to kind of, you know, start him out. And uh, learning at, at Norwich, you know. Um, then at 16, George was made a midshipman 
through the influence of Captain Partridge's benefactor and sailed off on his first voyage. Um, well, his first voyage as a midshipman in, in the military. And this was on the frigate United States. And uh, again, George is weirdly lucky. He happened to be sailing on uh, where they were going to the Mediterranean. So he actually briefly got to see his family and Are like reunite me? with them. Yeah, while, while he was on his first voyage. Oh, that's so nice. I know, isn't that cute? Um, so after other, you know, ships and trips, he went to the, the coast of Africa, he went to Brazil, George returned to the United States in, uh, the country, not the ship, in 1837. George would go on to explore the entirety of the western coast of North and South America, wow. all the way from the ice sheets of the Arctic, all the way down to the Southern Ocean and the Antarctic. Oh um, my God! In, a, in a, a four-year voyage called the Wilkes Expedition, um, and George would actually write a popular account of this, you know, kind of amazing voyage um, called Four Years in the Government Exploring Expedition in 1852." And and it, uh, I guess it, it's actually pretty popular. Like it's been reprinted. The last reprinting was in like 2013. Oh, yeah. So it it's like still out there for sure. It it I kind of want to read it actually. It sounds like it would be pretty interesting. Um, so George continued, you know, near constant voyages with the Navy, but did find time to eventually marry in 1846 mm -hmm. and was promoted to the rank of lieutenant in that same year. And he seemed to be, again, living a pretty charmed life um, until, again, it, it also it's, gets weirdly tragic at times. He almost dies from what they called yellow jack, what we would call yellow fever. And he's he's you know, just deathly ill. I mean, so many people died, you know, of this, uh, disease. Um, and when he actually, he took like a real turn for the worse, they actually thought literally that he had died. Like they read him his last rites. Oh they put a flag over him and were ready to bury him at sea when the flag started moving. No way. That's what I read in my sources. I'm, I believe it. Honestly. What? And no, no, no. That shit only happens in the movie. <laughs> Maybe that it wasn't exactly like that. Perhaps. I don't know. That is... But suffice it to say, he he survived. He had a brush with death, but, but he came through it. But it took years. He was in recovery. Yeah, yeah. Eventually, though, he did recover and continued to climb the ranks of the Navy again, you know, kind of overcoming this obstacle as well. And by the time of the um, American Civil War, um, he was um, promoted to commander and given command of the USS Supply on the Union side. Um, unfortunately, again, tragic, um, at the same time his wife died of a kind of chronic lingering disease. And as a consequence, George took his young son, George Partridge Calvacaresis, of course, you know, named for his benefactor. Oh, yeah. Um, which probably inspired young George Partridge to eventually become a rear admiral in, oh, in the Navy himself. Again, wow. like I was saying, okay. it, it, we'll actually see that it, there's, there's more as well. So Commander Calvacaresis distinguished himself um, in, in many different campaigns and, and th you know, actions during the Civil War. But one in particular, I, th I believe it was the first one, really, was that he engineered the capture of a Confederate blockade runner ship. Oh. So these were these kind of, like, um, fast ships that would um, try to run through the blockades 
to get arms and, and kind of like ammunition and stuff, right, for for the rebels, which they were sorely in, in need of. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, from their perspective, right? Militarily, obviously not, you know, anyway. So George disguised his vessel, um, you know, to make them think it was a friendly vessel, and this allowed him to approach the other ship, the, the, um, the, the runner, um, and board it. And, you know, they kind of, like, took took it over, and it, it all it all went kind of according to plan, right? Pirates! It was like a pirate maneuver, but, like, good pirates. It yeah. was like pirates on the good side. You know, I like that. <laughs> so, um, I assume no one walked the plank. I'm not sure. So, this is uh, what his son, George Partridge, and his, um, said uh, about his father's service in the Civil War. One who knew him well never heard him complain. His modesty and reserve never led him to seek personal advancement. He was simple in his habits, just, and most honorable in his dealings with all men, and affectionate in his family relations. Close quote. So it's just, okay. a, just a nice little quote from his... I mean, obviously, it's from his son, right? But, I like. I like. I know, right? But um, it wasn't only his son who took notice of, like, George's great service. He was actually specifically thanked by the president, by President Lincoln, on two occasions. Wow. And given a letter of commendation, like, personally from the Secretary of the Navy. So, I mean, he was one of probably the most, you know, accomplished Navy service members during the Civil War. I mean, hey, like, immigrants get the job done, right? Exactly. And, in fact, he, when there, there was, like, a um, an article, I, I think it was just about, like, immigrants or foreigners like military service during the civil war Mm -hmm. and he he was like yeah they said like he was the top one like clearly um so by 1867 you know george was given the rank of captain and a retirement you know kind of concurrently right like um you're gonna be a captain but you know you're you're like moving on to retirement because he was pretty old at that point so from his, um, you know, long and, and uh, distinguished naval service, you know, he would uh, give lectures about all his various travels um, and, and on natural history as well um, until and this went on for five years. You know, he was in retirement until June 3rd of 1872. And on June 3rd of 1872, George was, for some reason, impatient to take care of some pressing business with his insurance agent in New York City. And at this time, he was living in Connecticut. And he planned on taking a night boat from Bridgeport, Connecticut, at 11 p.m. It's kind of like the red eye of the day, right? And you'd get to New York and do whatever you needed to do early next morning. Mm-hmm. And he was last seen alive, other than by his killer, at about 10.30 p.m. on June 3rd of 1872. And this was by a clerk at Wheeler's Drug Store from whom George bought some stationery and also got directions to the docks. While George was walking to the docks, um, he was shot with a pistol and killed. It seems that the killer and the thief uh, were uh, was waiting in ambush. Now, whether the killer was waiting for George specifically yeah. or for whomever came by, we really don't know. Um but what we do know is that George had a number of items on him, right? He was carrying um, kind of a larger bag and a smaller bag. Mm-hmm. He was carrying a sword cane that was broken, like a cane that you could, you know, yes, take yes, a sword out from. Thank you. Yes. J- just, j- just, to, just to be clear. 
And he was also carrying some bonds worth about $80,000. And he was also apparently carrying cash of about $8,000. Now, all of that was taken. So, you know, if, if this was a random, you know, burglary, the guy must have been like, Jesus uh, hit the jackpot, right? And again, from his perspective and, um, a nearby officer heard the gunshot, ran to the scene, didn't see the killer, um, but did find George apparently dead. Um, eventually investigators would find little evidence at the scene. Um, they found an old pistol, um, at that time, they didn't really have any way of verifying if it was actually the murder weapon or not, but they mm-hmm. presume it was. And that was found about 60 feet away. Um, they found a uh, the larger bag that George had been carrying, w- devoid of its $8,000, of course, um, on a uh, wharf nearby, having been cut open. And they also found, eventually, some percussion caps, a bullet, and a powder horn, again, presumably what the killer used, uh, within, again, about a 60-foot radius of, of where the body was found. So they also eventually learned that George had George had recently increased his life insurance to $198,000, uh, or one hundred ninety five. I saw a couple of different ones. But again, he was also going to his insurance broker, so who, who knows what he was going to... Maybe he was going to change his life insurance. Who knows? Yeah, he had maybe that had something m- to do with it. We have no idea. Yeah, he had a lot of money on him. Yes, he was. He clearly had like a good bit of money, like. But that's what they also said is that he didn't seem to have any money troubles, you know, because they kind of looked into that too, right? He didn't seem to have any family troubles. He didn't have any obvious enemies, like. Okay. It just when they looked into it, it would they just really couldn't decide what happened. They briefly considered that it might have been suicide, but mm-hmm. it was. It seemed implausible just from the circumstances. But also a doctor gave testimony that it would be impossible for the gun to get way over there and you having shot yourself, like, in that way. True. Like, that's not actually possible. True. Which, if you think about it, it's like, oh, yeah, that that's like, you can't shoot yourself and then throw a gun. Um, I don't think. So, um, yeah, there, there was, though, one kind of thing to go on. There was some reportedly strange behavior by George um, within the last week before this happened. So the week before George's murder, and this is according to the New England Historical Society, here's like a quote from from, uh, that source, quote, he had come to Bridgeport, wandered around the dock, and during dinner at a hotel, zealously protected a satchel that a clerk said was empty. Though he had an appointment in New York the next day, he hung around Bridgeport instead, close quote. So no one really knows what this is about. And this is the week before. And then the the week, then, you know, a week after that, he actually goes to Bridgeport and, and uh, presumably actually planning on going to New York. I don't, I don't know. I feel like it's a wrong place, wrong time thing, but that's pretty weird. Like. I know. And also, that could be a coincidence. Maybe there was some sketchy shit going on, you know, with his life insurance. Yeah. It, it could be a red herring, you know. But, um... There were no witnesses. There were no leads. Um, essentially, the police were stumped. Um, and, you know, as with a lot of these kind of murder mysteries, right, it seems like a proper investigation, even for the time, really wasn't done um, for whatever reason. And again, fuck people who don't properly investigate. Like, 
someone gets murdered, you should look into it and at least to, to do your job in terms of looking into it. I don't know. It's disappointing. Yeah. But it, it that's, again, something I read in sources. It just, just didn't seem like they really did that much. So, and unfortunately, you know, it's, it's like happened in 1872. Let's go back and look at the street cameras. <laughs> Doctor Who. Doctor Who can help us. We can go back. All right. We can find go, out. Let me go fetch him real fast. <laughs> Where's David Tennant? He was always my favorite one. <laughs> okay. So, um, oh, and again, in terms of like police, right, blunders kind of. So I read this in one source. Reportedly, George's body was taken back to the police station, it, like immediately after they found it, and it said his pants were stolen. Like they just left the body sitting around, and then someone stole the pants off of this dead body, apparently in the police station. That's what it said. I don't know. It seems kind of crazy. But clearly, again, they, they weren't doing what they should have been doing. No one was ever charged for the murder at all. And it remains a mystery to this day. But, like I've you know, said a couple of times, he leaves us with a lot, right? His remarkable life, this mystery of his death that's so in- inexplicable, um, but also a legacy of descendants who would make their mark in, in the, the Navy and, and uh, Army. So, of course, I mentioned his son, George Partridge, called the Caressus, became an admiral. Um, his great-grandson, Alden Partridge, called the Caressus, was in the army, got a Purple Heart, two Silver Stars, wow. served in World War II, the Korean War, and the Vietnam War. Holy shit. And after his retirement, Alden was a leader in the development of the first satellite map of the United States. So he was very impressive. He served in World War Two, and then yeah, he also became like this leader in, in satellite mapping technology. Um, and George's great great granddaughter also graduated from Norwich in two thousand and five, um, and was commissioned a second lieutenant in the U.S. Army. So, That's so cool. Yeah, it's like th- going three generations now, and who knows? Excellence. I mean, you know. Could keep it going. That was tragic that it was so random. How old was yeah. he when he died? Well, let me think. Uh, he was like 60. Yeah, because 1872, and he was born in 1816. Okay. No, see, so he was he was like 58 or something. Yeah. Well, yeah, he was actually really young. Wow. But he probably looked super grizzled because you spend 40 of your 58 years on a ship out in the middle of the ocean right <laughs> no thanks right not the life for me but i appreciate that he did it it reminds me of that guy that had a mini house and sailed across the oh yeah ocean. we talked about that on this right i don't know i think we did oh yeah, yeah. i do i remember <laughs> i knew you, you would, i knew it would click with you yeah i get what i i remember now okay okay so i also have a person story with a a mysterious death. Okay. So let's talk about Holly Harvey Crippen. Um, actually, this guy is involved in one of the most notorious cases in British history. Um, so uh, Harvey Crippen was a eye specialist, a medicine dispenser, um, a homeopath. So as we know, I mean... As, as we know, if you don't know, uh, homeopathy is, I mean, now it's a pseudoscience, 
but uh, back in the 20th century, it um, there were avid practicers of it. So it, it focuses on the focuses on the idea that a substance that causes the symptoms that causes the symptoms of a disease in healthy people would also cure similar symptoms in sick people. Does that make sense? It does, and. I have to say, it, it is definitely, like, pseudoscience, but it's, like, there are, like, certain instances where that's, like, kind of true, like, a vaccine, you know, but it's, it's like, a dead version of the disease, but still, it's, like, yeah, giving you the yeah, disease. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, like, um, I don't, yeah, like, um, using, like, bee stings to, like, promote an immune response or something. I don't know. It's like there's something there, but it's not what they're saying. Yes. In 1910, it was uh, Dr. Crippen that was hanged after being convicted of his wife's murder. It doesn't sound mysterious, but we'll get into it. Okay. So, Crippen studied first at the University of Michigan Homeopathic Medical School and graduated from the Cleveland Homeopathic Medical College in 1884. So homeopathy was definitely like in the upper ranks of academic uh, understanding, hmm. at least. Um, his first wife, Charlotte, died of a stroke in 1892. So at this point, he, he goes up to New York, like uh, a lot of people do in this time, and started, started up a practice. He got a job working for uh, Dr. Munyon, a homeopathic pharmaceutical company. And two years later, he met his second wife, Corinne Cora Turner, with the stage name of Belle Elmore. So, a beautiful, beautiful vaudeville performer. She's, just, she's also kind of described as domineering and dramatic. Um, that was also kind of uh, described by other men in the early 20th century, so I kind of want to mm. take that with a grain right. of salt, you <laughs> yeah. know? Um, and she was known to have many affairs outside of her, her marriage to Crippen. So the two moved in together in uh, 1897, and they actually traveled to the UK. So while Crippen couldn't practice in London with his American license, he still got a job distributing patent medicines. And Cora, on the other hand, while uh, her husband was working, she did a lot of flirting and a lot of socializing and networking. And uh, she continued also to kind of struggle as a music hall singer. In 1900, Crippen became the manager of Drouet's Institution for the Deaf, where he met a young typist by the name of Ethel Lenev, who he got along with exceptionally well. <laughs> okay. The Crippens <laughs> finally moved in 1905. You wink. I thought you were going to wink. Okay, great. <laughs> in, in 1905 to 39 Hilldrop Crescent, Camden Road, Holloway, London. And Dr. Crippen um, and his wife had a, had a meager home um, and a meager income, so they actually took in lodgers, you know, Airbnb style, to get by. And Cora went ahead and slept with one of these lodgers. You're you're not you're not like yeah. I'm not surprised. <laughs> so, um, meanwhile, Crippen made Ethel Lenev both his secretary and his mistress. Ah, turnabout is fair play. Is that is that the appropriate term here? 
I mean, they <laughs> not really. But, I mean, you she know. cuckolded him. Sure. She, uh, he did. Is to this her. just an open marriage at this point of an earlier age? I guess. If they live today, you know. I yeah. Don't know. So, let's get into his wife's disappearance. Ah. On January thirst thirst. Wow. January thirty first, nineteen ten. Friends of the couple, um, Clara Martinetti and her husband. They're invited by Cora to, like, have a little party and take a potluck dinner with them over at their place. Six months later, when they were interviewed and asked about that night, Claire recalled that it was it was a pleasant time and everything seemed normal. Cora and Holly um, were on the best of terms. Nothing out of the ordinary. Neither the Martinettis nor anyone else was to see Cora alive after that e- evening. So once people started to notice that she wasn't around anymore, it's when Crippen started to talk. He started to he explained that, uh, oh, uh, Cora re- returned to California. She's she's visiting some some relatives, you know. And so time goes on, and he started saying that uh, while in the U.S. Yeah, yeah, he's he kind of changed his story. So he started saying that while she was in California visiting relatives, she had fallen ill and died, and that her cremated remains were staying with the family. Hmm. Yeah, fishy. Not suspicious at all. So time went on, and there were, I mean, yeah, at this point there's plenty of people who don't believe uh, his story at all, especially since he asked Ethel Lenev to move into the house Corin and him had been occupying. And of course, she moves in and starts wearing Cora's clothing and jewelry. Ooh, yes. that's creepy. So the police are like, "All right, all right, let's <laughs> let's get to investigating here." Right. They go up and they question Holly Crippen. So he admitted that he had lied about his wife to save face, um, and that she had actually left him for another man and moved back to the U.S. That was his. Hmm. That was his cover story. Story number two now. Story number two, right? And uh, the police searched his house. I think four times. Um, I got a different number from from different sources. Um, but the first time they they found nothing, and they're like, okay, like uh, there's really nothing here, and they had to take the answer for what it was. But. Ethel and Crippen, on the other hand, they didn't realize that the police were kind of backing off. They thought the opposite, and they thought they, there was a lot of heat on them, and they thought they were about to get arrested. So, at least we think. We don't really know the actions to this. Hmm. Um, so they uh, fled to Brussels, where they spent a night in a hotel. And so at this point, Scotland Yard is on their ass, right? And and they search the house again, and they find a quite gruesome gruesome discovery oh no so buried under the brick floor of the basement they found the torso of the human body uh the corpse was identified by a scar on the appendix as corinne cora turner the head limbs and skeleton were never recovered so uh a man named william wilcox uh senior scientific analyst to the home office found traces of the calming drug scopo- scopolamine Sc- scopolamine. scopolamine 
in the torso parts. So um, yes, scopolamine I think is um, nicknamed the zombie drug because essentially you're you're very suggestive when you're on scopolamine. Oh. Okay. It's like, a, I believe it's a sedative. Yes. But it also makes you, like, highly suggestive, apparently. Oh, okay. So at this point, Holly Crippen and Ethel are, they board a ship called the SS Montrose, sailing for Canada. So they're like, get out of town. Mm-hmm. Ethel was disguised as a boy, posing as Crippen's son. They're on the run at this point, you know? Gotta get sure. the, the disguises. So, Had to go full paper moon. For sure, sure, for sure. Captain Henry Kendall, looking around, and he sees Crippen and Lenev, and he, he recognizes them, and he sends out a telegram reading, quote, have strong suspicions that Crippen, London, that Crippen, London seller murderer and accomplice are among saloon passengers. Mustache taken off. Growing beard. Accomplice dressed as boy, voice, manner, and build undoubtedly a girl, end quote. <laughs> so at this point, Holly, Harvey... I like that, undoubtedly Undoubtedly. They're like, all right. At this point, Holly Harvey Crippen becomes the first man to be caught using the wireless telegram. Oh. And Chief Inspector Walter Dew gets the message and his men board a faster boat mm. heading to Quebec, and so he got there before um, the couple nice. did. And at that point, he he contacts uh, the Canadian authorities, sure. lets them know what's going on. So as the SS Montrose en- entered the St. Lawrence River, he uh, Chief Inspector Dew was there. And he came aboard disguised as a pilot. And Captain Kendall uh, invited Krypton, like, hey, come, come, come meet the pilots. And... Dew takes off his hat. He says, good morning, Dr. Crippen. Do you know me? I'm Chief Inspector Dew from the Scotland Yard. And after a pause, (laughs) Crippen replied, thank God it's over. The suspense has been too great. I couldn't stand it any longer. So he was like, cuff me. Uh, Yeah, so he surrendered peacefully, and uh, he and Ethel Lenev were arrested on July 31st, 1910. And he returned to England on board the SS Megantic. So let's get into the uh, weird trial. So Crippen was put on trial at uh, uh, a a very uh, popular courthouse, the Old Bailey, before the Lord Chief Justice Lord Elverstone on October 18th, 1910. So the proceedings would last about um, four days. And they had a lot of different testimonies. So pathologist Bernard Spilsbury testified. He testified that they could not identify the torso remains or even discern whether they were male or female. However, Bernard Spilsbury found a piece of skin with what he claimed to be an abdominal scar consistent with Cora's medical history. Um, Large quantities of the toxic compounds... Scopolamine. Scopolamine. Were, were found in the remains, and Crippen had supposedly bought the drug before the murder from a local chemist. So the defense went ahead and pointed out that Holly and Cora had only been living in the house since 1905, so the remains could have something to do with maybe the previous owner. They weren't there for that long. Also argued that the scar... the, the um, Crippen's defense also argued that the scar that was found was simply folded over tissue instead of um, actual scar. Sure. So, after 27 minutes 
of deliberations, the jury found Holly Harvey Crippen guilty of murder and Ethel Lenev as an accessory after the fact. And Crippen was executed by hanging November 23rd, 1910. Okay. And now, that's the end of the story, right? No. Well, <laughs> let's get into his possible innocence, okay. even though it's a hard argument. I, I kind of mm. think he did it, but it's a difficult argument. Okay. So, Holly Harvey and Crippen always maintained his innocence throughout, throughout everything, you know. Two weeks before his death, he wrote, quote, I am, an, I am innocent and someday evidence will be found to prove it, end quote. John uh, Trestrail, a toxicologist who had been, who was really in, into the case, he noted that um, mutilation is like extremely weird behavior for a poisoner, Quote, in my database of 1,100 poisoning cases, this is the only one which involves dismemberment, end quote. In October 2007, uh, he got a team together and he brought in Professor David Ferran, Director of Forensic Science at Michigan State University. So the scarred skin of the corpse uh, used in trial was preserved in formaldehyde and attached to a glass slide with pine resin. So, so it, it was there. Dr. Uh, Foran obtained samples from Cora Turner's grandnieces and isolated the mitochondrial DNA, which we've kind of touched on this before, sure. which doesn't change when mm-hmm. you go down the female generations. So after multiple tests, the results were conclusive. The DNA was unrelated to the body in the basement, and investigators actually found a Y chromosome in the DNA, so the body found wasn't even female. What? So that wasn't her body? That's wow. the question, because I have a little more. Okay. So, um... No, I'm just kind of floored. I, yeah. I really... I know you were kind of hinting at that earlier, but... Well, when I first read that, I was like, oh, what? I like, was not expecting that, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, he his findings have been disputed, and I was like, okay, how can anybody dispute this? But it was... Got some pretty good points here. Um, Jonathan Menges, a, a writer and genealogist from San Diego... Claims um, that the, that actually the geano- de- genealogy linking the living relatives to Cora Crippen is is totally flawed. There's no birth certificate, no birth certificate for her exists, uh, for one example, and they were super rare in the U.S. at the time. So in that case, the mitochondrial DNA tests are irrelevant. He also notes that Crippen's behavior just straight up confirms his guilt. Okay, there was a body in the basement, and he fled. That's Really, the the one, two, three. And didn't he say he was like the suspense is killing me or something? He just thought yeah. like they must think it's me, so yeah. I need to flee. It could That's be. Like it could be either one. Argue? Yeah, it could be either one. Interesting. Um, that seems a little fishy, but it's yeah. weird. His actions are weird. Yeah. But then when you look back at here, I guess you could go either way. I suppose. Ah. It's still a circumstantial case. For sure. Um. Some um, other dis- uh, people who disputed said that, like, let me, I'm trying to think back, that, like, the technology is, like, too new and, like, doesn't, like, pertain to the case or something along those lines. I didn't really write it down because I didn't get it. Sure. To be honest. For technical reasons. <laughs> right. That you won't go into. Sure. Yeah. I understand. Exactly. I understand. So. Uh, yeah. I mean, as with any, I guess, um, you know, thing like that. The, I guess the results are only as good as the inputs, maybe. That you know, so that's, the, you could that, say that's that, a good point. Or you know, as with any 
DNA analysis, you can always claim that the sample is either corrupted somehow or too small mm-hmm. or something. You know, it's hard to know without knowing the specifics and also knowing anything about this at all, you know, in a real way, you know, other than, right. you know, just kind of like as a, a lay person. Right. So. It was a hundred years ago. So plus it was a hundred years ago. So yeah, like clearly the samples are probably not like uncorrupted in any way. So the questions that remain since, since Crippen removed the head, say, say he, he removed hypothetically, hypothetically, Allegedly, he removed the head and most of the body. Why did he leave any remains to be discovered in in the first place? How was this even carried out? Were there were there kitchen knives adequate to to do something like this? Um, why did Crippen tell Cora's friends that she had gone to Canada, and then he mixed up his story when when actually Corin is said to be an enthusiastic letter writer would definitely have been in touch with them. If if she had been alive, so and was she actually killed with the sapa the humaha the scopolamine? Yeah, scopolamine. Scopolamine. Um, there's another word for it. I think it's easier to pronounce. I think it's hyacin. Hyacin. I'm not sure. H y o s c i n e. Hyacin. Yeah, that's hyacin. Sounds, I like that right one better. Cool. So, if and then if the research is true. And the body's not Corinne. Where is she? And whose body is this? And whose body is it? And how did right? that body get there? Right? Oh my god. So one of the theories was that like it belonged to um somebody who who owned it before. Right. So maybe maybe that ha- maybe that's fucked up. Can you imagine? Holy shit. All right, I'm moving out. Uh, peace. Right. Going to a different country. Here's That's, my house. Good luck with it. <laughs> it's a real, yeah, deal breaker. It's a deal breaker. What do you think? I, it still seems like he did it, but then also the things you're saying make me think maybe he didn't. I, I know it's very. No, but I agree that there's enough there that it is a it is legitimately a mystery. Yes, I yes. agree. But I also enjoy these kind of, like, edge mysteries. You know, like, is it a mystery? Like, part of the mystery is whether it's a mystery or uh, not. Oh, shut the fuck up. Fucking meta. <laughs> Just got fucking meta on <laughs> Okay, I think we may... Oh, wait. Neither of us did our sources. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> I just realized My that. Sources? You do your sources first, and then I'll do mine. Oh, no, you do, you do yours No, because first. I'm pulling mine up. No, because I'm pulling mine up. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, no, wait, that's... Uh, what did I call probably. it? Doctor. Okay, my sources are uh, Harold Calvacaresis at the Washington Historical Quarterly. Oh, okay, um, so family member. See, exactly. Kind cool. Um, so, also, um, this page from a blog called Futility Closet. Um, the page was called An Obscure Exit. Um, the page on uh, George Calvacaresis on Appleton's Cyclopedia of American Biography. Um, a page on the New England Historical Society website. Mm-hmm. Tasha Caswell at ConnecticutHistory.org. And George P. Peros uh, from the Bureau of Archives, Washington, D.C. You got a, you had a lot of really good sources there, and then you had a... One from a, a blog, did you uh, say? You know, I don't, I, I don't tend to discriminate too much in my sources. The blog seemed fairly legitimate. Okay, there were, obviously okay, there that's are, fair. Obviously, there are more or less legitimate blogs. Yeah. 
I'm Sometimes not totally I like look sure, at my sources but... and I'm like, nah, fuck this. <laughs> no, I don't know about I don't know about all this. But yeah, so lo- the, some of my sources were like yeah. official records and stuff. So. Yeah, especially if something crazy happens, I'm like, okay, all right, right, let me see what everybody else says about that. Exactly. So my sources were uh, an article from the Telegraph titled "P.D. James and the Notorious Murderer, Doctor Crippen," and and there wasn't a. Um, a, Wikipedia, a um, a author for that. Oh, it was just there. Um, an article from the Guardian by Martin Hodgson, a BBC mag- magazine article article that also didn't have an author, and uh, Wikipedia. But I usually I mostly use Wikipedia just to click on the links that Wikipedia used already sure. to get that all that. Exactly. Okay, oh now God, are we doing it. We can do some weird shit in the news. Weird shit in the news. I could not. I was almost going to start laughing because you have a <laughs> ridiculous voice. Oh, my God. I'm also dancing, but you can't see that. Um, should I go first with that, too? Okay, I will. Viking. <laughs> not going to wait for an answer. But uh, Viking chess piece sells for more than $900,000 at auction. Not any normal chess piece though just want to make that clear this okay. chess piece was carved from walrus ivory and is from the 12th century Whoa. 12th century apparently there were um a number of these that were found like horde of them of dozens of these in uh 1831 on a scottish isle called the isle of lewis uh which is pretty crazy and, um, but five of them were missing, and this is one of the missing ones. <gasps> Whoa! That's actually, oh my what? god. That's Crazy, wild. Right? Can you imagine that, like, happening to you, like, you're on a hiking trip or some shit, and you, like, come along, like, fucking treasure? <sighs> or dinosaur bones that you find in your backyard. The, the, oh, that Wasn't happens. that how, uh, L- Lucy or whatever was found? The... The, like, big T-Rex that's in, up in Chicago. I do not One know. of those. One of the, like, famous ones. It was found by, like, some just random person's daughter, like, digging in the backyard, literally. I definitely... That definitely triggers something in my head somewhere. I believe that's true. I, be- I also believe it's true, Mario. If we believe hard enough. Yeah. Okay, what's yours? Okay. <laughs> I have that sympathy voice now. Yeah, I understand. Yeah. Oh, God. I will agree to anything. Okay, so... Uh, this one's weird. This, <laughs> this is such a clusterfuck of a fucking website. I'm sorry, but I hate this shit. What, oh, the CNN website? Ugh, it's yeah. terrible, and there's no reading mode. So, the title is, it's from CNN. <laughs> Den- <laughs> see what it's doing? Yes, I see. <laughs> Denver is rounding up its Canada geese to turn them into food for the needy. <laughs> I know your face! Ah! <laughs> so, is, this is in, in Denmo, in Denmo, in, in Denver, and so I guess they have, like, a growing goose problem. So they had this initiative uh, put in, and they're going to round up some geese and process them into food for, quote, needy families. Uh, the U.S. Department of Agriculture spokeswoman Suzanne Bond said, she says, quote, the resident goose population in this area is too large, which will cause many problems, including overgrazing of grass, ornamental plants and agriculture cultural crops, accumulation of droppings and feathers. Oh, that's so nasty. Disease, attacks on humans by aggressive birds, ha ha ha, and the fouling of reservoirs, swimming areas, docks, lawns, and wreck areas, Bond said. And the USDA says that goose meat is safe for human consumption. 
<laughs> I, it sounds fine to me. I mean, me too. I sometimes I, you have to call a herd, you know. I uh, I'd have some I'd have some geese meat. Just guy have a yeah, lot Yeah. Plus, of... fuck geese. Fuck geese. Fuck geese. Thank you so much. Um, Terrible. There was a fucking goose guarding one of the dormitories. I remember that. Called Bruce the Bruce the Goose, and he actually has a Twitter page <laughs> called Bruce the Fucking Goose. That's funny. And he was legitimately attacking people, right. and so they had to put two police officers outside the entrance and say, you can't go here because this geese, <laughs> this goose will peck you in your head. <laughs> because geese are Fuck dinosaurs. Geese. Like other birds. They're um, really cute babies, though. Well, most things are cute as babies. Yeah, like Most sloths, things are cuter than humans as babies. Sloths are, are cute babies, but sloths themselves are nasty with their ugly fingernails. Ugh. I think that is an unpopular enough. opinion. Most people really yeah, like sloths. Yeah, I think they're cute. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, we can get into this, but we're not. I know, right? So, thank you guys for listening. Yeah, guys. For real, for real. Thanks, guys. All the it cool makes, kids. makes us feel good. It does make us feel like good. Like, we're not preaching to the wall. Oh, we need to, like, record more stuff like that story that was sent and stuff we're, we're yes. trying to be better guys sorry we we're, are trying we're to like be better. yeah we're almost hitting episode 100 dude i know right so um, we gotta step it up step up your game yo and uh think we still have a lot of things going on we still have a lot of things changing but that'll be over within within the week yeah i'm very happy about it good <laughs> okay bye, bye. Oh, hit, hit us up on Twitter and shit. Bye. <laughs>